Oh, yes. Shout it. Shout it out loud. It's Friday. It is finally here. End of the week. And welcome back on this Friday afternoon. Good to have you along. Of course, as we mentioned off the top of the show this afternoon, the country, the entire country in mourning on this Friday after the legend himself, number 10, Guy Lafleur, we found out passed away earlier today at the age of 70. Earlier this morning on the morning show on Global Television, we were joined by Rod Black, who, of course, is a longtime sportscaster and analyst and covered uh, Guy Lafleur's uh, career, particularly later on throughout the uh, 80s. And we asked uh, Rod Black, uh, first and foremost, if he could share with us maybe a favorite memory he had of Guy Lafleur. Yeah, good morning uh, and a sad morning. Uh, I have a lot of memories, just like you guys. Uh, I did wear number 10. I was of that vintage uh, I grew up in Winnipeg, but we didn't have the Jets at the time, and we, you know, everybody it seemed was either a Canadians or a Leaf fan, and the Canadians were so good back then. And yeah, you pretended that you were Guy Lafleur, and you wore that number ten, and it is such a sad day. And and for me, some of my memories, you know, I got a chance. I mean, he was one of my hockey heroes growing up, and the beauty of sports sometimes, often, is that you get a chance to meet your hero and, and, and cover your hero. And when your hero is even a better person in real life, that is truly iconic. And I, an unbelievable irony is the, one of the last times that I saw Guy Lafleur, we made a trip with the Canadian military. I hosted an event, and of all places, Lviv, Ukraine. This is about five, six years ago. And I'll just never forget how everybody gravitated, the, the, the young Canadian military members gravitated to Guy Lafleur. They couldn't believe And they were like maybe 19 or 20, 21 years old. <laughs> None of them were alive when, when Guy was playing hockey. Yet all of them knew because of the parents, knew because of his legend, knew because of the, the film, knew because of the pictures, knew because of who Guy Lafleur, the flower, was. And I'll, I remember how grace, graceful he was, how charming he was and he just was such an ordinary guy but he was you guys an extraordinary talent on the ice and he is a hall of famer that you know that legend is going to live forever okay and speaking of rod how will Guy Lafleur's legendary hockey career how will it be remembered because i think we all think of Guy Lafleur and that blonde hair flowing in the wind as he would fly down the right wing and he had the knack Guy Lafleur did of whenever the team whenever the canadians needed a big goal he was there to score it yeah yeah he was clutch the team was clutch he won five you know stanley cups four in a row uh, in the 70s, um, he, he, you know, he was the part of the dynasty. Um, he, he, you know, he came down that wing, as you said. You know, that hair was flying. He was charismatic, but he was so, so good. And it is a terrible coincidence, you know, that Mike Bossy passed away. And you showed that picture with Wayne and Mike and, and Guy Lafleur. And, and I guess that's time. You know, time passages. We, we lose people like that, and it's sad that we lose Guy Lafleur. I remember covering the, the Rocket Richard funeral in Montreal, and, and how an entire province came out to to celebrate his life. And same thing for Jean Beliveau. I put Guy Lafleur right up there. If there is a Mount Rushmore, <laughs> per se, of, of hockey, certainly in La Belle Provence, Guy Lafleur is definitely on it. Uh, he will be remembered as... And, and, and he's also going to be remembered for coming back a, a lot of times to the Forum and to the Bell Center. And, and every time he came back, the, the ovation, you know, was... It cascaded over and over, and then he'd have that little tear in his eye. And he was such a kind man and, and a warm heart. And and the and the bottom line is, again, just you know, a tremendous, tremendous.
tremendous hockey talent. Again, it, it, it hits me hard today because I was at the Hockey Hall of Fame here in Toronto last night, and I was going through that, if you've ever gone there, the Montreal dressing room, and I actually sat in the, the lockers, and there was the Lafleur, and I knew he, he had been suffering of late, and I, I knew that you know there, there was a chance that something like this could happen, but... Um, you know, he is going to be missed, and I know that province. I know that this country today is in mourning, and I know that the hockey world, there will be many, many moments of silence throughout uh, every hockey arena uh, as they think about the, the flower today. Without a doubt, there is Rod Black joining us earlier this morning on the morning show on Global Television with his thoughts, his feelings on the late Gila Fleur passing away today at the age of 70. Okay, former President Barack Obama, he is taking on apparently a new role, fighting disinformation online. In a stirring speech yesterday, Obama warning that democracy will wither if this online disinformation is allowed to persist. Have a listen. What does still nag at me, though, was my failure to fully appreciate at the time just how susceptible we had become to lies and conspiracy theories despite having spent years being a target of disinformation myself. Social media companies already make choices about what is or is not allowed on their platforms and how that content appears, both explicitly through content moderation and implicitly through algorithms. The problem is we often don't know what principles govern those decisions. In some cases, industry standards may replace or substitute for regulation, but regulation has to be part of the answer. All right, let's welcome in tech expert. Here's Carmi Levy, who joins us now on this Friday. Carmi, good afternoon. Great to be here, Jeff. Great to have you, as always. Uh, first off, uh, what was your reaction to the former president's words? What did you think of the speech? Well, I mean, you know, I'm, uh, I'm an unabashed fan of, uh, of President Obama. I mean, I think he, whether you agree or disagree with his politics, he's a righteous individual. And the, the issues that, that he's chosen to focus on as he's transitioned from president to private citizen... Uh, really are relevant to us all. And I think there's a particular poignancy to his choice to focus on disinformation, considering that he was dogged by by rumors, you know, the birther conspiracy theory, uh, which Donald Trump very famously played up uh, for so long. And so, you know, here, this goes way back, uh, you know, you know, so long that, you know, he was, uh, he was deliberately and in a very high profile way victimized by disinformation. He's lived it as a victim and he understands uh, the terrible impact that it can have, uh, not just on individuals, but on communities, on society in general. And so, uh, you know, he's he's speaking truth to power. He's he's sounding the alarm that it isn't it's, it's not like a building on fire. We don't see it in front of us, but really it's a fire under democracy. And if left unchecked, uh, it will compromise the very institutions that we hold dear. And so the fact that he chose to focus on this uh, in this speech and and others uh, you know, really, I think you know, he is the voice of reason. We should be listening to him and we should be prioritizing this more than we have recently, especially given what we've learned over the last few years about precisely how damaging this is. Yeah. And with so much on the line, I mean, how do we go about tackling this problem, this problem of disinformation, particularly uh, online? As we just heard in that clip we, we played from former President Obama, he is suggesting regulation. Would some sort of regulation help in this case? Or is this really, are we too far down the road? Is the genie out of the bottle, do you think? 
Well, I mean, to a certain extent, the genie is clearly out of the bottle, but it doesn't mean that we can't, uh, you know, do something going forward to mitigate the impact. So there's always there are always options. And the word that comes to mind for me is accountability. It's forcing those platforms that have made it so easy to spread disinformation to be more accountable for what happens on those platforms. Mark Zuckerberg, of course, the founder of Facebook, now that he heads up Meta, the rebranded company, uh, he very famously said years ago that, you know, we just provide the technology. We're not responsible for what people subsequently do with it. Uh, and we all know that that's, you know, that's a, a fairly significant lie. It's an easy way of walking away from their accountability. Uh, you know, the gun industry certainly has accountability for what people do with their devices. And we have, we have regulation around guns to ensure that everyone has an appropriate level of accountability for the role that they play in that economy, in that system. Same thing needs to apply to technology platforms. And, uh, and so we're seeing this happen in Europe. The European Union has proposed something called the Digital Services Act that would force big tech companies to be more accountable, to be more transparent about the algorithms that they're using to decide what we can and cannot see and cannot, cannot, and can and cannot do. Uh, and as we know, legislation like this often starts in Europe. It sets the tone for the rest of the world and eventually uh, the US and other jurisdictions, including Canada, will follow suit. So I'm watching carefully what's happening in Europe with some hope because I'm hoping that the example that they set there sets off some some ideas, some uh, idea light bulbs here in North America that mm, maybe we should be getting with the program too and stop big tech from getting away with allowing disinformation, turning the other cheek, so to speak, for as long as they have. Yeah, you mentioned Zuckerberg in his comments, Carmi, and essentially, you know, the old business adage is they're too big to fail. And it seems like that was a version of that, that we're just essentially too big to be accountable for everything uh, on our site. Can you give us a little more insight as to what you're seeing there in uh, Europe? Are they penalizing social media outlets for essentially a publishing what is disinformation? Uh, what's happening there and what might give us some hope and uh, might uh, actually provide a path forward for uh, you know other countries, including uh, Canada, to fight this? They're moving in that direction. Europe, of course, has always been very progressive on legislation that uh, rebalances previous imbalances in the technology industry. For example, uh, privacy, you know, Facebook very famously with the Cambridge Analytica scandal uh, stepped over a whole bunch of lines on privacy. And of course, the, the GDPR, uh, which is their landmark privacy legislation, has set the tone, set the template for the rest of the world to follow. We're now seeing similar laws being put in place in the U.S. as well. So, you know, the 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 the, the tone in Europe is we're kind of fed up with big tech, largely American firms, essentially having the run of the land, essentially defining the rules of the game without telling us what those rules are, and then having no accountability for it, no consequences. Basically, they're getting away with the, the digital equivalent of murder. So we're going to put frameworks in place. We're going to put consequences in place. Uh, and, and this is the way the law will be. And so I think that's you know, Europe always leads, the rest of the world will follow. And I think, you know, if you're, if you look at the, the rise, or, or let's call it the decline of Facebook's public relations, in other words, the, the, the perception of this one company, uh, that it has now is perceived as a digital bully. That's really, you know, I, I think we're, we're basically tired of it. We're tired of logging into apps and essentially being told what to do. And essentially knowing that their platforms, their technologies are being gained by people who do not have our best interest at heart and no one is being held accountable. And so I think that the, uh, you know, the needle is starting to tilt back in the right direction. It'll take some time to get there, but that trend line is growing and I'm encouraged by it. 
Is part of the hurdle getting there when we talk about battling disinformation or misinformation is defining what that is exactly? Because I think there's disinformation, which is dishonesty. It's something that's not true. And then there's not agreeing with something. And those are two different, entirely different things. And do you risk, uh, I don't know, crossing the line into censorship here if you don't have a really good definition of what is disinformation? You absolutely do, because, of course, free, you know, free, free speech advocates always say, well, the, the instant that you try to rein in anything that someone can share online, you're now a censor. Um, and so it's this is not a black and white issue. These are very, very subtle shades of gray. And, and we do need to have rock solid definitions of what misinformation is and how that differentiates from disinformation, which is a somewhat more, uh, let's call it aggressive definition. In other words, misinformation is I share something, I might not have had intent to do so, whereas disinformation is I'm deliberately trying to mislead. So we need to have those definitions. They need to be publicly available and accepted and understood. And that needs to be the bedrock on which we build any kind of platform, technology, or regulation that tries to ensure or protect us against extremes of it. In other words, when I go online on one of these on one of these platforms, I want to be protected from disinformation. I don't want to see content, or I want to ensure that content that spreads conspiracy theories that can be damaging to communities, to society, to democracy, are dialed down. Um, but at the same time, you know, I should still have the right to be to engage in a fairly wide swath of conversation without worrying that I'm going to get, you know, round filed because I said the wrong thing. Um, and of course, you're never going to please everyone, but you've at least got to try because right now we've we've you know what we've experienced for the last 15 years of big social is essentially big tech doing nothing to rein it in. And look where we are now. So we've got to at least try, but we also have to you know, realize where does that line lie? We don't want to cross it. Certainly thought provoking and the conversation undoubtedly will continue around this. Carmi, always appreciate the conversation with you and the time. Thanks so much and enjoy your weekend. Great being with you, Jeff. You as well. Tech expert Carmi Levy with us. And we're back after this here in the Jeff MacArthur Show. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.